We forget that we're surrounded day in and day out by human artifacts, that money isn't just something that has value. It also tells the story of how we've come to negotiate with one another, how we stopped bartering and started using coin. All of that ultimately enriches, I think, the experience person to person in a way that's kind of beautiful. It makes life meaningful. Welcome back to The Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hashem Montasser. If you're joining us for the first time, hit the follow button in your podcast player to get alerted when we have a new episode, which is typically every other week. You can also listen to our extensive catalog of previous episodes on our website at thelighthouse.ee slash podcast. It includes amazing guests like Chef Daniel Boulud, Time Out's global CEO, Sandy Hayek, Akibadori's founder, Samir Hamada, and Boone's Coffee, Orit Mohammed. I'm joined today by Ivan Brame, chef owner of the Michelin-starred restaurant Nuri and the creative interdisciplinary space Appetite, both hotspots in Singapore. Ivan, who hails from Brazil and is a self-described mutt with a mixed heritage, including Syrian, Lebanese, and German, has a colorful career and has been credited for earning former restaurant Bacchanalia in Singapore, its first Michelin star. Ivan worked at celebrated restaurants around the world, Per Se in New York, Mugaritz in San Sebastian, and The Fat Dog in Berkshire. I had the opportunity to spend an evening at Nori a few weeks ago with my wife and two kids. I have to admit, when I walked into Nori, so much of it reminded me of the same ethos we've had when we started The Lighthouse. The notion that a restaurant is not just about the menu, but really about attacking all your sensations. Your sense of smell, your sense of feel, your sense of sound, all of it. And Nori does an exceptional job at it. Ivan also tells me that hybridity and curiosity fuel his sense of discovery and that this gives him the opportunity to do what he calls delicate work with delicious things. Chef Ivan, thank you for uh, joining us. I'm going to let in our listeners on how I met you, if you don't mind, because I think that'll be informative for the rest of the conversation. So I was with my family uh, going through Singapore on our way to Tokyo a couple of weeks ago. And a dear friend of mine who lives in, in Singapore, uh, who shall remain remain unnamed for now. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> My friend Bobby suggested um, to come check out your restaurant. I came with my family. We had an incredible experience, both mm-hmm. as a culinary experience, as an overall experience, meeting you, your team. Um, so many things struck me, both when we walked in and then during our conversation, and that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you. So thank you for making the time. Happy to be here, Hashim. Thank you for the invite. I remember you and I, the first thing I think we talked and sort of slash laughed about was the fact that when I walked in, you had this little lounge area uh, where we mm-hmm. sat um, before uh, we actually entered the dining area. And you came to speak to us there, which I found incredibly thoughtful. And of course, my restaurateur mind, the first thing that came to mind, my wife was saying, oh, this is so thoughtful and so well curated. And I was also thinking that, but I was also thinking he gave up that space for like a lounge. I mean, that's not monetizable. Right. <laughs> so, so we actually talked about that. And um, the more I had looked post-experience into your work, specifically Nori, your restaurant, 
and the curation that you're doing remind me a lot of what we had done in very different style and very different place at the Lighthouse here in Dubai. And I wanted to start there, perhaps understand if this very curated space, and hopefully some of our listeners will come and visit, uh, was intentional um, when you had the idea of starting Nuri? Uh, no, it, it kind of evolved. The original idea for Nuri had the bar as a, a main kind of draw, and that was six years ago. We had a really dark bar. Uh, it was a place for 10, 10 guests to kind of sit and, and uh, enjoy drinks and perhaps have a more casual experience of what the, the restaurant was, was about. But we noticed that uh, not that the bar wasn't working, it's just guests came in without fully understanding what we were doing. Hmm. Because so much of the restaurant was about the narrative, the storytelling, uh, the research, and, and making sure that guests kind of understood before they stepped into the space that the food is obviously the center of the entire experience, but that behind the food, behind that curtain, there was so much more. Uh, I needed a space to do that, you know, to be able to kind of introduce the, the experience to guests and uh, to maybe use that space also to start them on something, you know, to, to give them a, a hint of, of what we were about. When we did the renovation, I'm like, yep, absolutely. Let's change that straight away. The bar goes and we're surrounded by really good bars as well. Is that conversation that you have with the guests when they walk in always part of the experience? Yeah, absolutely. Either by uh, given by me or by my general manager. The point is that we we both uh, give the guest a full full explanation of what's to come. I felt it was a very powerful experience in the sense that, as you said, it really set us up for what's to come. We got to introduce you as well. Um, you're um, Brazilian, but a heritage is very multi colored, if I may say that, including some Lebanese heritage, which is great um, for us. <laughs> given, yes. Given, yeah, we so there was some commonality there as well, yeah. kind of the, the Arab world. Um, I was immediately struck um, by a few things. One is how you were telling stories. And mm. the storytelling is clearly very much part, I think, of your personality from what I could see and part of your menu and what you're serving your customers. But it was not just telling stories. It was also telling stories that very clearly connect different parts of the world. Yeah. The, the point of the restaurant is to communicate to people through food the incredible amounts of links that unite uh, cultures. And in fact, there's a, uh, an attempt at highlighting the folks that culture doesn't stand in isolation and that every, every cultural artifact is the result of interactions that go back time immemorial, right? But we forget these and it's very easy to fall onto these tropes of my food versus your food, my region yeah. versus your region. And so what started as just an, an impulse try to verify uh, intuitive kind of assumptions I had about where this dish comes from and how it links and connects to other people became a real curious exploration through research of the history of people and their food traditions. Narrative and storytelling for me are also a way to remind guests that a dish is not just the food, right? I think when you drink a, a, 
a glass of wine or eat a piece of cheese, you're having that product, but you're also having the hands of the farmer, the soil, the grass, and all of those stories, even though they impact the product, they get condensed into that one experience of putting a cheese in your mouth and forgetting about everything else. And so narrative gives us the opportunity to kind of expand that hologram again. May I just add that even though I, I admire your story as an Egyptian, we will still claim hummus and possibly falafel as well. So I just want to kind of put that on the record so that we don't have to fight. I mean, I'm <laughs> all about United. Right. <laughs> but you I just wanted to put that right. there. Okay, so we I will take that. Especially with hummus. Yeah, the hummus, exactly. We, that's, this is what I've been told. So I'm planting a small Egyptian flag. It may or may not grow. <laughs> and I will leave it there. Do you feel that this is... Um, a direct result of your heritage and your own upbringing in Brazil? I think so. I'm sorry to, to cut you off, but absolutely. And only at a later stage, I figured that out because initially it came naturally, but I didn't understand why. Yeah. But I, I am the product of a generation of immigrants that ended up meeting in Brazil, right? And I think having to negotiate uh, like a Christmas dinner with uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims, pagans, <laughs> atheists, agnostics, all sat around the table <laughs> trying to figure out who was right and who to vote for and what football team to support really teaches you how to bri build bridges, I guess, and try to look for the common thread. I think if you're consistently fed that same image of people who are like you and believe in the same things, you end up finding difference very different, you know, I tend I use that analogy of like the we're all the same but wearing different shirts, right? I think difference is a circumstantial thing. It's not an essential thing. If we had the opportunity to walk in each other's shoes for a bit, we'd very easily easily understand why we perform the way we do and why we feel so different. And so has this been accentuated in your mind over the last couple of years, given the kind of hyperpolarization that we're seeing globally, you know, a lot more conflict, obviously a lot more um, polarization left and right, especially in the US, but also in other places. Brazil actually comes to mind. I mean, yeah. so do you feel that has heightened that feeling in you? I think the feeling remains the same, but it heightened my sense of urgency. I think it mm. before it was just something I believed in and I thought it was just whatever. But now it's I, I look around and I do feel like it's an important job, you know, to communicate to people that at times like this, we need to come together. You know, it's very easy, I think, to preserve blood ties. Uh, during COVID, we experienced this, for example, right? This notion that the only people we really had direct access to were our closest families. Otherwise, we would ask to be apart, right? Like social distance, to not connect. Uh, and, but it does take relearning and a relative amount of effort to come near a stranger, to engage and interact. And we have the beauty of doing that in one of the last types of social spaces that exist, which is a restaurant. Like when we boil it down, like the town hall doesn't exist anymore. To meet in person right now, you are either at a restaurant or a bar. And yes, correct. So that gives us the opportunity to maybe do that uh, very um delicate work uh, with very delicious things. But you seem very deliberate and intent on having a conversation and having a dialogue. I mean, in some ways, your restaurant felt a bit like almost like a Kunsthalle in some ways. It felt like, uh, you know, um, a multidisciplinary space, not just a restaurant. 
Um, and I know from doing some research that upstairs you have another space, correct? Where you yeah. are actually doing that, where you're, you know, exhibiting art, maybe having some um, uh, music. So there's clearly, you clearly see a connection here between your food uh, and arts and culture. And it seems like you want to do that. You want to have that conversation. Obviously, we like all of the things that we, we are handling, right? Um, I'm a music lover. We love art. But ultimately, I think the understanding that these things are really all just people artifacts, right? I mean, your music list was was epic, by the way. I mean, that was like, it made my yeah, entire, I, I mean, we sat there for a couple of hours and I'm like, remember, still like bopping my head like in between, <laughs> you know, dish two and three. And then my whole family joined in, if you recall. So that was- I do recall. And, and kudos to you. I mean, you were very complimentary of me when you started. Let me be complimentary of you. What a wonderful family you have. It was <laughs> tremendous to, to feed them. Uh, your daughter and son were like so eloquent and-, and Thank you. Uh, Gourmands, very young gourmands. <laughs> it sets the bar a little high. <laughs> we'll see where we go with it, but thank pressure, you. Pressure is on. When, when I started to notice that a dish is kind of like a door into an entire people, right? Like you can explore yeah. that as a door or a window. It was the realization that the work was being done because ultimately we're just trying to figure out people, right? It's not really about food. I think people are curious about people. It's not really about art, it's just what is it about people that is expressed in artistic work that we can see ourselves in. And I think most of the problems we experience nowadays regarding consumption uh, of art or any other product is because we lost that human factor, that people are looking at things in a way that is too plasticky and, and very much uh, finite. It's about the technique employed, it's about the thing in your hand. It's about its value monetary. It's about the label. And we forget that we're surrounded day in and day out by human artifacts, that money isn't just something that has value. It also tells the story of how we've come to negotiate with one another, how we stopped bartering and started using coin. And all of that ultimately enriches, I think, the experience person to person in a way that's kind of beautiful. It makes life meaningful. And so the the point of the space downstairs and the spaces up upstairs and indeed the interaction that you you picked up is that ultimately everything about those venues is literally about those interactive moments. The the exchange that happens between the wait staff and the guest, between the guest and the stranger how they have to negotiate the random exchange. Imagine I had the benefit of introducing the restaurant just for yourself and your family, but at times there's multiple tables sitting there yeah. and, and we deliberately make them wait. <laughs> it's, we don't, I don't share that with a lot of people, but <laughs> we, we purposely give them like five to 10 minutes worth of awkward wait so that they have to, at some point in time, acknowledge the other, Take right? In. Yeah. And then we bridge that gap. We make jokes about it. We remind them that it's safe and it's good, you know? And I think a lot of people do the leap. And, and so the experience ends up being uh, fed by the food and, and kind of lubricated by the drink, but it's really a human thing. And so one thing we've noticed is after we started doing this better, that people pick up each other's bills, 
they uh, give each other a glass of wine that they brought, even if it's a random guest, you know, that people are more willing to share, that they poke fun at a neighboring table in a cordial way. And I think we are, we are on the precipice of forgetting how to do those things and that it is no longer to force. Like we, we need venues like Nuri and Appetite to remind us. Now I'm going to put on my restaurateur hat for a second, which you're also an owner operator, right? So the experience that I've had, a wonderful one, is very tactile and very much in-person experiential in all the ways. You know, your senses when you come into a restaurant, take in, as you said, the art, the music, the senses, the smell, and then of course the food and everything else around you, including other guests. That experience, um, is a wonderful experience. In today's world, you have a couple of other things here that I want to bring up and then have you react to, if you don't mind. One is a world of, you know, um, Michelin stars and and other categorizations where they want to be like Nuri is X, you know, mm. and in my case, the lighthouse is Y. When people ask me what food we serve, I say, well, it's sort of Mediterranean inspired. It's the closest I can find to explain because I wasn't set out to do like, you know, Italian or Turkish or Lebanese or Brazilian. But I think people almost find comfort. They want that categorization. Certainly nothing against those award givers. God bless them. They keep the places humming. But I think they want that even more. In fact, they even categorize that per, you know, best mm -hmm. Italian. Best this, of best course. that. Yeah. So you're going against that trend. And then thirdly, um, there's social media, where some of these experiences are not easily translatable. Fine, we mm -hmm. have now video and audio and all of that. But to me, in Nuri experience, no matter how many videos you post or pictures of the dishes, really, you really have to go and see it. You know what I mean? So, uh, but all of these things today matter in a success and ultimately sustainability, financially, of a restaurant. So how do you uh, reconcile these forces? I think you have to do good in all, all of those areas. And so we do our best to under, understand the, the platforms and the systems that we have to engage and participate in. I started with a certain level of, of young arrogance, I guess. Yeah, you, you I don't need a no bit of snobbery, a little bit of arrogance. Good, arrogance is good. I mean, it taught me a ton. And the reality is when we first opened the restaurant, I, I used to forbid people of taking pictures, for example. We did. Yeah, that's not going to happen today. Impossible. And <laughs> yeah. now I look back and I'm like, what an idiot. <laughs> I would have looked at myself. If they right can't now, post like, it, uh, Ivan, then, you know, to, to, to some people, it, that's the whole experience. Yeah, the precisely. When we first opened, the first design ahead of the restaurant was a communal table only, right? And okay. it was my wife that turned to me and said, uh, do you want to eat at a communal table 100% of the time? What if we're talking about our child? What if we're talking about yeah. this? I'm, I don't have kids, but that's a... Yeah, yeah. I started to realize uh, at every step of the way that my own experience as a diner is also... Maybe it's slightly different than my experience as a producer of food, a cook, a chef, a thinker. And when you reconcile both of those, I think you end up doing better jobs. And so I think I'm not a fan of social media in a way, but I also believe that it has potential for good, right? And so instead of focusing on the fact that it distracts people, that it, it gets you completely addicted to dopamine in small amounts. And before you know it, you're burnt out. 
like I could focus on this, but I can also use it as a platform to articulate in the best possible way why what we're doing is important. And so I think you need it, since we're in the world, we we play the game of the world, right? We and this is a part a part of the experience. But I don't make this the focus. And I used to when I started. I remember this. Uh, I think it was the realization that very quickly that superimposes the value of what you're doing to the point where you start to do things because of the recognition, because of the value. 100%. And suddenly your IP is gone down the drain, right? And you see that with a lot of chefs today as well. I think something that started as unique and original that ends up just becoming a veneer of itself because it keeps the machine running. In fact, it even affects how you're thinking about your own brand and expansion. As you said, it affects the IP. I mean, we have four restaurants in the UAE. Um, two of them um, are in, in, in malls. And, you know, when we were looking at awards and things like Mena 50 Best and similar, right, um, we, are, we are more of a casual fine dining. It's not a fine dining restaurant. But, you know, people said, well, you know, because you're in a mall and you're not only one location, you have multi-locations, this is going to go against you. And all of a sudden, I started for a minute, and I think I caught myself going from how I feel about how I want to expand this brand. I felt very, I was very proud of the fact that actually a brand like ours can be in a design district, but also translate in a mall setting, and they look very mm -hmm. differently. But both can have a different experience, but a very good, hopefully, experience. To almost being a bit shaming myself, be like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't be in malls because that's not cool. And if I'm not cool, then I'm not getting the awards. So you do have this doubt. There's no question about it. Uh, and it, it took me and a conversation with a friend to come back and say, I should do what I like to do best, give the best experience to the guests. And then all the rest is, as you said, if it comes fantastic, it helps tell the story, but it's not how you're planning your your stories and your 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 brand evo evolution. Yeah, I, I agree with that position, and I'm sure for you it must have felt liberating once you made that decision, right? It did. It took a while. It was not a, an immediate decision. Uh, in fact, I would even admit that for a short while I was kind of thinking about how do we court this interest, um, mm. and then I sort of realized that that's not the way to go about it, and that it's not really my genuine interest, and it's not what I started this. So it's going back to first principles. And I feel you've done a lot of that. And I love that you started this conversation when I asked you about whether this was deliberate. You said it evolved. Because to me, one of the beautiful things for entrepreneurs, and you're one of them, whether you're coming from a food production perspective or starting any space, is you start something and then you refine and iterate, refine and iterate yeah. until it kind of clicks. Um, and sometimes it clicks for a while and then it stops clicking as well. That's very humbling. Um, and I think makes any consumer facing business very difficult, frankly. Um, but I feel like you you trust your instincts and you seem to kind of have developed a set of values that you really believe in. I mean, that's kind of almost like your raison d'etre. Especially because in the in the process of trying trying this out, like you described. And evolving into it, I realized that the less authentic you are, the less it makes sense, really. Yes. And so you can't, I, I realize now that perhaps um, other things would have been easier if I had only done this, but I am not that person. To enjoy that process has been the best part of my job, really. 
I think to do some, something that is meaningful and authentic and provide a service is of great importance. But if it betrays core principles, then what's the point, right? I think we see a lot of people out there who are very unhappy about their very successful careers. Yeah. Uh, and really yeah, yeah. all they wanted was to be like a sheep herder or a honey farmer or like, you know, I, I think of uh, the, the point there is, is very obvious. And, and that, so I have the benefit of going home going like, yeah, I fought the fight today and tomorrow I get to keep, keep at it. And it's engaging. I mean, whoever said open a restaurant, it's going to be fun was like totally BS. <laughs> this job <laughs> is hard on the knees. It's uh, and they say, oh, it gets easier with time. I'm like, no. No. no, maybe you, you learn to let go a bit more. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, I think that's, that's exactly right. You learn to create a tiny bit of distance um, to let go, but I don't think it gets easier. In fact, I think with some measure of success, it becomes more difficult because of exactly yeah. what you just said earlier. There is then that pressure is what do I do with that IP now? You know, like, do I span? Do I keep doing the same thing? Do I you know, in your case, take Nori and, and go to Hong Kong or Dubai, or, I mean, you know, do I, I mean, it's, 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 so it opens up doors. Uh, um, and ironically that creates, I think some anxiety, um, yeah. about an yeah. indecision. Yeah. I, I think you touched on a word that's very, uh, it's instrumental for modern living. And if it's not going to come from work, it will come from other things. I think we are, especially because of our relationship with tech, with money, that anxiety is part and parcel of, of uh, modern day life and learning to manage it is the make or break, I think, for a lot of uh, a person's life. So but I, do, I do believe that restaurant life has taught me how to handle it better, to be honest. And so it's very funny with people like, I would never be able to do this thing. It would make me go crazy. The reality is I, I think I'm less crazy because of this job. In case you want to contest my planting the Egyptian flag over hummus, check out my conversation with Hanil Malki or Bedouin Foodie. We talk about the recorded history of hummus on the episode. There's also a link in our show notes. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about honesty and staying true to one's roots and how Ivan's mother has inspired his lack of complacency. That's right after the short break. Welcome back. You're listening to The Lighthouse Conversations with my guest, Chef Ivan Brehm. You know, at some point, I think you referred in some of the articles um, about your cooking as crossroads cooking. There is a um, going back to the roots element to your mm -hmm. restaurant and to your cooking. There is certainly a hybridity, a very strong sense of hybridity, which I can completely relate to. How does that manifest it in how you think about your product day to day um i mean do you go in with that in is it intentionally or is it subconscious and just sort of spills over spills out i think it's both i, I think there is a natural tendency just because of my upbringing the fact that i'm from brazil that we're all very culturally diverse and uh it's very hard for you to do the same thing twice you know yeah. people are consistently changing things and innovating uh older recipes and that's part and parcel it's imbued but when the concept opened, I think to, to stay true to the uh, idea, it became very important that we, we pursue that in every element. And so everything about the space is consistently weighed to express diversity. 
in all forms, you know, be it with staff and gender diversity, uh, with with the music and the uh, incredible array of songs we play, the types of ingredients, the types of relationships. How do you do that without it becoming tropey, you know, and becoming buzzwordy? Because, you know, I mean, yeah. you say diversity and even I, you know, now like immediately recoil yeah. it because like, oh <laughs> my God, there yeah. we go again. He's going to give me the full. And I know you're not. I'm just saying. So yeah, how no, it's do a you fair really question. do that? And, and it doesn't look forced or he's just trying to be a do-gooder and, and tell a diversity story. Yeah, I think it is who who we are first and so i live i live that reality i think yeah. it is I think that's right and to have this conversation about gender i also have to evaluate if my my performance at some point in time has been patriarchal and sexist right and to go through the process of going like yeah maybe i need to reform some of my ways here and so i think that's why self-examination element of it yeah it prevents it from becoming tropey Precisely because of that honesty, I think we are approaching it with that thing in mind. If we set out to open a restaurant that's about the interconnection exists that exists between people, then and we fail to live that in our relationship with staff, with guests, with music, with decor, then we're not really living that that uh, proposition, right? And I, I think that's why it feels that way. And here is the. That's the. I think this ties a little bit back to the question you had earlier on about the importance and, and relevance of social media and how to navigate that. Because qu quite quickly, we've become consumed by this notion of uh, uh, tropes, fads, right? And so people ask, I love that question. I'm sure you had it as well. A magazine, normally it's a, a high net worth magazine comes to you <laughs> and says, what do you think will be the, the next trends for 2024, right? <laughs> that article runs on like December 2023. I'm well and aware. You're like, what do you want it to be? I think people have forgotten that we choose the trend, right? With our vote, with our purchasing power, with our decisions. And the, the trend's going to be what you decide it to be. So instead of focusing on doing gender equal conversations because you see them on Instagram. How about just, do you want to have crappy relationships with people of different genders in your work? The answer is no. Do something about it. Ivan, I have an answer for you uh, for the trend for 2024. I'm I'm jumping a bit ahead because we're not even in December. It's my green pepper. Can you see it? Called oh pep. My well, my daughter called it pep. So Pep is not particularly happy, but it really does everything because I is can that a stress it. ball? <laughs> yeah. That it, is rock and roll. It alleviates anxiety. It's food related. It's green, which I predict is new color for 2024. <laughs> so anyone that's gonna ask me this year, I'm going to present Pep. How do you reconcile between the mind space, being a chef, coming up with new ideas, menu development? food development, and then the business side. At the end of the day, you have to pay your employees and you have to make money to survive another day. How, yeah. much, how much time do you spend on that and how do you weigh between those two? I think as I grow older, I am starting to spend more and more time taking care of operational issues that aren't the cooking and creative bits. And I think I'm blessed enough to have good people to help Work me do that. Uh, but I realize also that chefs aren't necessarily the most well-equipped uh, business leaders, right? That we're not necessarily 
the most talented number crunches and and that is a learning curve for me too and so because i care for the business you end up learning how to handle it and i'm not going to say i'm the best at it but i can say that i'm learning very very quickly no that's great and it's a shift i had uh, daniel boluda on this podcast sometime back he was in dubai mm-hmm. and one of the things that struck me about him was how he made that transition from essentially being a chef to a businessman mm-hmm. and he it came i don't know if it came natural to him or now he's just done it long enough that it felt natural mm-hmm. but most certainly when he spoke to me it was fascinating how much of it was he really now had confidence and a grasp of the business element of his brand and ip and i think yeah. that serves him probably really well he's obviously um significantly older than you and 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 sort of from a different generation but some clearly chefs want to make that transition and have an element of both and some i think don't and would say i'd rather just be in the kitchen either someone else deals with it or i'm just not going to do it and i think yeah outcomes I'm are not, obviously very different they are i'm i'm currently it's a, a very relevant talk for my present moment because i'm very much caught in between both of these i think i i the personal gratification that i derive from cooking a service and being immersed in the actual moment of serving guests and uh putting things together it, it's very hard to explain to anybody but i'm also starting to realize that the potential uh outcomes that come out of that are very finite and limited and that yeah. i have responsibilities that are greater than my enjoyment of my work now and so i think i approach this uh, with some tension let's put it like this if i could choose i'd probably be cooking service every day yeah. <laughs> all the time uh but i wouldn't be able to retain my staff to promote potentially offer them other uh, opportunities for their own development too and so i think i'm in that process right now actually it's a and there are so many ways to um go about it you know i watched on the plane coming in i think it was a netflix uh a, a documentary or documentary on wolfgang puck mm. and one of the things that was very evident he was in a restaurant or started a restaurant in hollywood in california you know very star power but then he leveraged that for which i think now is a much bigger business probably of a catering business um so you know and he does things like the oscars every year and so on and so forth so he had that i know these people um but he used that brand recognition for another purposes which solidified his company his business i'm sure and gave him a far more predictable outcome because as you and i know when you're in a single restaurant or even in anything that's sort of consumer facing directly you're somewhat at the mercy of the footfall this week is slow next week they're not here so i was very interested i don't i don't know him it didn't go into it in the in, in the documentary but whether he did this kind of consciously or not but he then created a very stable let's call it revenue line for his business built on his ip and excellence to support his other dreams so to speak that seems to me to be a very rational way of thinking about ip and thinking about growing businesses as you kind of start evolving from single restaurant single facing customers every day and every night but it's very I, I hard because so. there's so many options and you get very i think tense about which direction to go 
I think you see, but the it's a brilliant point you made because you do see the sustainable models are the ones that manage to keep their uh, core unshaken. And I think uh, the impressions that I've seen that have not managed to survive, and I, I am um, looking at even very famous restaurants, you saw what's happening with the potential closure of Noma within the, the next years. I think it's if you expand beyond your ethos and, and you, the apple falls a little too far off from the tree, I think the restaurant starts to uh, feel it. And I think the thing with Wolfgang Puck is that his branding is and his restaurants are so very much him, you know, yes. they, they ooze of that, that uh, flair. And I think that's why it works. And you can see it across the board. I think the most successful Russians and Russians that we try to emulate and learn from, to be honest, are those Russians that could be doing something, for example, completely unsustainable at a time where everybody is getting reminded of being sustainable, like burning wood or, you know, serving meats. Uh, and But they're true to their story. And they do that unabashedly and with love and passion and dedication, serve a good product. And, and because of it, I think the restaurant thrives. And so I think being committed um, and expanding from that point is, a, is a, a good lesson to learn. He's a master. Wolfgang is a, one of the most business savvy chefs that uh, I've had the the opportunity to briefly meet, but also learn from. I've seen the documentary you're talking about. It. It's, ah, it's you have. Okay. Yeah, it's it's about one single event, I think. And yeah. it's very interesting because that savviness really comes through. I was fascinated by it. Um, when I look at what you've done and I look at Nori, I mean, to me, for example, you know, I can even see it being more of a lifestyle brand, really. I mean, I could almost see it like being a as much of a, boutique hotel as you know um, um a multidisciplinary space as a restaurant so it's interesting you go into places and you get a feel and i think the way you approach things um could apply to so much more that's not just purely f and b frankly mm. um which is interesting you know whereas someone like wolfgang Park, to his credit you know i think understood that that celebrity attraction and and connections he had and so on can be you know, monetize, frankly, in many different ways that go beyond just people coming to his restaurant every single night. Yeah, yeah. But you have to keep that uh, that window and door open, right? That You can no longer afford, unless I think there's another alternative here, which is the very sustainable uh, restaurant that is a small, yeah, uh, that's the committed... Yes. And it's also a beautiful model to run by. And I'm romantically attracted to that notion of the Japanese sushi where the chef leaves, lives on the second floor and yeah. comes downstairs every morning and sets a table for 10 people and just produces uh, everything that he wants. And, and, and enough is also one way to look at it, right? Is this yes. enough for me? And is that okay? You know, I think there are two ways of going about this and, that's also part of the confusion sometimes for me as a as a developing businessman is how much how much growth is necessary, you know why and if sky the sky is the limit here then am I prepared to pay the price for some of that? There's no question there is a price I can tell you that much already uh, that you pay for it <laughs> you know just to <laughs> PM but also you have to be true to yourself 
you know, I think that's yeah. really key. In my case, for example, I'll be very honest. I was not particularly interested in just having one place and going to it every day. It's not who I am. It's not what I want to do. And I had to be honest about that as well. And I think that's much better to come to that realization and be honest about it than pretend that's what you want out of life. Now, being in cities like Singapore, like Dubai, I think also is so, they are so growth oriented. You yeah. know, again, if you are maybe in the old world, um, as it was called, uh, and old Europe, as a, as a Ministry of Defense in the US called it, Mr. <laughs> Rumsfeld, um, you know, I think maybe you don't have that pressure. I mean, ultimately, in my case, I can be very honest, it comes from me. It's not coming from an external force. But living in a city that has been so transformed, similar to Singapore, over the last decade or two, I think almost puts, always puts growth at front and center, on, in your mind at least. So yeah. It's hard to run away from that. I'll be honest. I, I, I agree. I, I, I totally agree. And the, you can mimic that in nature, right? I think there are lots of, not to get too ethereal here. But I think that systems are either uh, growing or they're receding and, and dying. I think that's a natural uh, progression of things. Uh, it's just uh, what's the direction of the growth. And, that, and, and I think there is the answer you gave. I think you grow in the direction of your true vision, right? Your, your core beliefs there. And I, so I, like meeting a few Japanese chefs, for example, I could tell that even in the context of them feeding the same 10 people day in, day out, five days a week or six days a week, that they approach their day-to-day -day with that mentality of growth in the little thing, right? Yes. They want yeah. to make the thing very different the model. Yes. precise thing, but the idea of growth is the same. It's also very Japanese. When they decided not to continue to grow, that would probably be the time for them to retire because they can't take refining this chow and mushi one more day. You know, it's a yeah. it would yeah. be a bit too much. But the the premise I think still remains that growth is unbeatable. And, and if you feel like you're not growing, then maybe you're at the right, the wrong uh, job. The, the and wrong so many area. things feed into it. I mean, again, we go back to to roots and upbringing. I mean, you know. Like I'm a, uh, I grew up in Cairo in a large city. I'm very much an urban child. I'm I'm not someone that you know I think would survive very long in suburbia or yeah. you know kind of smaller yeah. towns. And I had to come kind of to to to, uh, to terms with this. Even Dubai, which is a beautiful city, I sometimes when I travel seek friction because I grew up in a city with so much more friction. Yeah, yeah. And I realized. It took me a while to understand that, that I need it. So I go to New York, I see like the garbage piled up. I'm like, oh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of yes. course. Yes. The honking. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The, the dispute for the taxi, the hackling. Exactly the right. Yeah. Exactly right. So I don't miss necessarily the, the car accident disputes of Cairo, but I miss a little bit that friction. And for me, it's a spice of life. For someone else, it's like, yeah, you're crazy. I mean, why on earth would you want to have this in your life? And I think, again, it comes back to who you are and, and how truthful you want to live in terms of what makes sense for you. I completely agree. I, I, I think uh, your description of your experiences are very similar to mine. At some point in time, I think we all need a bit of dirt under our nails. Exactly. <laughs> 
And if we don't have it where we are, we need to travel. And I think people, there's a, a Portuguese saying that goes something like, if you don't have enough trouble in your life, you just cause it. <laughs> so yeah, right. at some point in time, if it's too boring, you, you need to spice things up. Ivan, uh, it's been a great and multifaceted conversation. Thank you. Um, I'll leave you with just one, one last question. I'm curious, you've had many influences uh, obviously, in terms of cultures and places, you talked in some of the articles about some of your family members, notably your grandfather and your grandmother. To your mind, what has been uh, the greatest influence uh, in terms of people on you, and in what, in what, in how you live your life today? That's probably my mother. I would say I think that that very close nuclear center there, but probably my mother. Why I, is that? If you don't mind me asking. Like what, because beyond being your mother, I mean, what is there something in particular? Yeah. She's a pain in the butt. <laughs> I'm <laughs> going to take her out because if she listens to this, <laughs> come, come after me. <laughs> no, she's, she's a uh, uh, very instigating, you know, she's consistently provoking, provoking you to come out of yourself, provoking your thoughts, your answers. She was very much. Uh, and I think, that translates to pain in the butt, but for the right reasons. I think she's always been trying to shake shake things up a bit. I remember growing up and she would uh, change her computer mouse. You know, on Monday she would have it on the right side. On Tuesday she'd have it on the left side. And she was always trying to seek for that certain um, threshold of discomfort that keeps you uh, on out of edge. your comfort zone. Yeah, and I, I learned very early to put that you know anytime that things looked remotely like we were getting a bit complacent the whole thing would get turned around suddenly rooms change you know let's fix the living room and she was like this in her food preferences and always exposing us to a ton you know we were we led a very uh, rich cultural upbringing because of her not with a lot of money it's just you don't need much to keep people engaged and kids need very little you just need to keep them entertained and life's pretty entertaining. So I think she cracked that code. Thank you for, for, for sharing that. And so much of honestly, what you do, I'm not saying this just to compliment you is pushing those boundaries. So I'm sure she's extremely proud of you. Uh, it shows up in everything. I mean, uh, from that night we spent at your restaurant to conversation we're having now, how much you're pushing your own boundaries and trying to explore, you know, what, what feels comfortable, but maybe even a little bit uncomfortable I, I salute that. Uh, it's a, I think it's a great ethos. I uh, wish you all the best. We hope to, you, to have you come to Dubai soon to visit us. Absolutely. I can't wait. And uh, I am look forward to our next uh, trip to Singapore as well. Rock and roll. It's been lovely talking to you. And thank you for having me, Hashim. Thank you, Ivan. All the best. Take care. Speak soon. Ciao, ciao. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. If you know someone who would love to hear our conversation, please share it with them. That's how we essentially grow, with friends sharing our episodes on social media, on WhatsApp, and other ways. The Lighthouse Conversation is hosted by me, Hashem Montasser. Our producer is Chirag Desai, and our content director is Farah Sharif. You can connect with us on Instagram at the Lighthouse underscore podcast for behind the scenes videos and more. Also listen to all our previous episodes in your podcast app, we're at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. We'll see you again in two weeks.